I invite you, if you are able, to rise in body or spirit as I give us the uh, scripture lesson this morning from 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 1 through 9. We'll read it together. The Apostle Paul, again, writing to those Christians at the church at Corinth, one of the early Christian communities. And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for solid food. Even now, you are still not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving according to human inclinations? For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another, oh, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? What then is Apollos? Or, um, or what is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor of each, for we are God's servants working together. You are God's field, God's building. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Amen. Whoever first said you can't teach an old dog new tricks never met our family's toy poodle named Sugar. Actually, we didn't teach her that many tricks. She taught herself. She lived till she was 20 years of age. That's in human years. I guess that's 140 if I got my math right. I was a music major in dog years. And I still miss her, I'll be honest. I don't miss the questioning looks that my 300-pound self would get marching her around the block or taking her to the groomer with those white pom-poms sticking out from under my arm. But whatever poodle sass and, and uh, pizzazz uh, Sugar had, she, she made up for in absolute adventure. I like to call her our family stunt poodle. Uh, for example, when I would take all three of the dogs fishing in my little bass boat, the other two we had at the time would cower somewhere near my feet, and, and underneath me, the faster we went, they would go further and further underneath my legs, but not sugar. The faster I went, the more she leaned out over the very front tip of the boat, no matter how rough the water was. She was seven pounds. She was determined to ride it out there. The faster I would go, the farther she would lean forward. Her entire chest was over the front of the boat, nose out there, poodle ears somewhere behind. To break further poodle stereotypes, she would seldom bark. But when she did, it was commanding. And it was a solid octave lower than the other dogs, who were, one of them was twice her size. Her eyes and her ears began to falter as she got a little older in life. In the last year or two of her double decade reign on earth, she could not see all that well or hear us all that well. And I think she just wanted to make sure that we would not forget when it was time to provide for her most important need, which was, of course, eating like some of us. We like to eat, too. She taught herself a new trick when she was about 18. At age 18, she would walk into the kitchen 
grab a very large, heavy, stainless steel dog food bowl and carry it in her teeth to the very center of the living room where usually Shree and I were sitting there with the boys and we were either visiting or watching TV and she would tilt her head back just as far as that little neck could go and slam that bowl down right in the middle of the floor and stare at us and stomp her feet. Clang! It scared me every single time. And we would roar with laughter, but also start moving. God rest Sugar's sassy little soul. She was an old dog, always learning something new till the day she left us about seven years ago. Apparently, advancing in age on paper and maturity or faith, they don't always go hand in hand as well for human beings as it did for sugar. Did you notice our scripture lesson? The Apostle Paul called these very much full-grown adults at the church at Corinth babies three times in the nine verses that we read. Did you catch that? Their factionalism, their jealousy, their quarreling, their desire to appear spiritually superior to one another was being addressed here by Paul. Now, nine chapters later in the same letter, chapter 12, Apostle Paul is celebrating their differences within the congregation. He's uh, championing their diversity of their gifts and even gives credit to the Holy Spirit for creating the different gifts and abilities and different stages of their journeys together. Uh, but here in chapter 3, did you notice he was a little irritable? Just a little bit. You babies in Christ. Wow, I could almost hear him say. He's a little fed up. Now, the difference is between chapter 3, where he's fed up with their differences and their gifts and the way that they're going about expressing them, and nine chapters later in chapter 12, where he's celebrating their differences of their gifts and all the good things, is that they're trying to one-up one another in chapter 3 and look spiritual. And in chapter 12, they're just sharing what they have. And they're doing it for the common good not for themselves. And so the motivation there is an excellent reminder, I think, for us as well as we consider today what we're calling stages of faith, maturity, growing. In his letter to the Philippians, another letter Paul wrote, we see Paul's expectation that growth in faith and faithfulness is to be considered an expectation for those who follow the way of Jesus. Now, most of us who've been around a while, you probably have heard these phrases before from the third chapter of the book we call Philippians. You can look it up later, but just listen to these phrases. Have you heard them? If not, let them kind of rush over your ears. He said, not that I've already obtained all this, talking about maturity, but I press on. I move forward in faith toward the goal that lies ahead in Christ Jesus. Let those, he concludes this part of his letter to the Philippians, saying, let those who are mature think on such things, leaving the past behind, straining instead towards what is ahead. Paul's using, seems appropriate on Super Bowl Sunday. I guess there's a sports ball game later. Athletics metaphors for training and discipline in the faith and stretching and pushing forward. Now, all of this sounds well and good, right? I mean, but those of us with an eye towards real-world experience know that progress in our faith, in our journey, is not easy, it's not automatic, and it's anything but linear. You know, you start at point A, 
You do a really good job. You get to point B and C and D. And you, just, you know, you keep going. Pretty soon you've got the whole alphabet in there. Good job, super Christian. That's not quite how it works, is it? Because there are problems in life <laughs> and challenges in life that we face sometimes from within ourselves, if we're being honest. Our personalities, our dispositions, our experiences growing up, all those things. And sometimes there are problems and challenges that are from outside ourselves, that are completely out of our control, and they confront us and they surprise us when we least expect it at the worst possible of times. And there are seasons, as we know in life, and there are seasons we know within our journey of faith where we just, quite frankly, aren't feeling all that vibrant. Is it just me? And things like doubt and depression or boredom or disinterest or suspicion, those are very real seasons of our faith journey and of our lives. And so like the Corinthians, whether or not we realize it, we deal with comparison issues as well. We want to look like we have our act together, maybe even just a little more than the next person. Not that we're out to get them. We just want to shine when the light comes our way. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Not enough to be showy, but just enough to be special. And sometimes it leads us in our faith and sometimes not to, not to be very transparent. Because, you know, if we get to thinking like that and we get to kind of feeling like, uh, well, i got to keep up my image here. We begin to get not very transparent. And so we really hide how we're doing or we don't talk about it. We, we isolate ourselves from community instead of pressing into it. And, and so, or the opposite can be true. So we, we train ourselves to be completely unaware and blind to our whereabouts when it comes to our life of faith, our our outlook on the world from inside out because we've defined our own goalposts for success. I'll use a sports analogy. You know, if we're the ones setting the goalposts where they belong, we can be pretty successful. And so we set up these little goalposts wherever we can excel. And we make sure we hit them all the time. And there's some of that that's necessary. We should. Positive reinforcement is a wonderful thing. But if we're primarily concerned with pure doctrine or dotting all the theological I's and T's that we already know about, and our, the thing is just to leave the goalposts where we're most comfortable with that on the journey of faith so that we can always kick the ball between the goalposts, uh, it might start off at a noble intention, but we can lead to spiritual stagnation if we're too caught up in a system we have created for our own spiritual image. The last thing we would ever want to experience is so much as a single moment, let it be an extended season, let alone if it was an extended season, I'm going to use the D word of not dog food. The story about sugar is behind. The D word I'm talking about today that we dread is doubt. D-O-U, silent B, T. We've trained ourselves to think negatively about doubt. And yet, what we're learning in study of spiritual formation and how faith works in practice is doubt is actually a helpful part of our journey. The great theologian Paul Tillich said a lot about doubt, but this it always sticks with me. that He said that doubt is not the opposite of faith, but rather doubt is one element of faith. 
I don't want to talk totally positively about that, but I think it's more helpful that we know uh, a little bit about this. And so I want to kind of wrestle with something here. Let's try a little group participation. Will you help me? I look like I need your help, don't I? Let's try a little something. Raise your hand if you would love to grow in your faith and spiritual maturity. I would. I mean, I'm just being honest. I figured most of us might. If you're here, it's kind of, you know, part of it, hopefully. Now your hands are down. Now, raise your hand if you would love to be plagued by strong feelings of doubt for the next three months to 30 years. Okay. Some of you contrarians did. There's a good chance you're in stage three. Don't worry, I have you pigeonholed too. So what we've discovered is that doubt is actually one of the normal things we experience right before we mature into another stage of faith. But it's how we handle it. It's how we deal with it. It's how we process it. Now, much of what I'm going to share next is not just from my own experience, but from one of the most brilliant books I've read in the past 28 years on spiritual growth and development, and I've read a few. And uh, today, as you came into the sanctuary, hopefully you got this chart. And don't worry, I know according to which category you are, how you've been feeling about the chart already. Positively or negatively. It's not a nice little neat chart where we all fit in there. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But this is from Brian McLaren's recent book, Faith After Doubt. And in this book, which I highly recommend, uh, McLaren points out that doubt, as it turns out, is a passageway from each stage of faith to the next. And without doubt... He makes a point. There would be no growth. Without doubt, there can be no growth within our... There could be growth within our current stage of faith, but we just kind of rinse, wash, and repeat and recycle things, typically while we're in a current stage, one of the current stages of faith. But when we hit a wall of doubt, and it is not just a fleeting doubt, but a season of doubt, there's a good chance that we're getting ready to grow. Now, stage theories, even of stages of faith, can easily be abused, Okay? Especially by folks who create them and make sure to put themselves at the most advanced stage and judge, judge everyone else as inferior who's beneath them, right? So let's do away with the mental image of kind of climbing a ladder or making a hierarchy out of the stages of faith I'm going to talk about for a minute. And instead realize as I talk about stages of faith and development that we are all a work in progress. And sometimes we might feel like we're at one stage, but when things get really tough, we retreat in some areas of our lives. Or when we really get something from a stage that's a little further along, we might surprise ourselves with a really mature response. We're all on a journey. We might be in different places. But I like to think of it instead of a ladder. I think this is a helpful analogy, and Brian McLaren uses it in his book. Have you ever looked at a cross-section of a, a mature tree trunk? Now, I'm not talking about looking at the bark on the outside, but if you turn it and you look where you can see the inside of that tree trunk, where it's been cut down and ready, you know, for firewood or just damaged, whatever it is removed, they have rings, right, inside the tree. Have you ever noticed that? And so they each represent a different part of those rings to represent a different season. So periods of growth, right, and periods of dormancy. The wider spaces that you see in those little rings represent growing seasons, and the dark, thin lines that separate each of the wider sections of growth represent dormant seasons, where the tree was not growing, but it was dormant. And we all have these in life. Now, I made available to you this two-sided chart when you came into worship, and uh, we'll email it out again in Midweek Messenger for those that are worshiping online. 
but uh, this week. But you can glance at it. I hope you will. It's two-sided. Whichever side you're on, though, you'll notice the four phases of faith, according to Brian McLaren, are across the top in dark blue, moving from left to right. The goal is to be further on the, to, towards harmony, which is at the far right edge of the page, and simplicity at the far left. And so, you know, you can track down your perceptions of different things at these different stages. These are not, uh, it's not a science, although there's quite a bit of science and study behind it. Uh, it's not a pure result, and it's very subjective on some levels, and yet I, I see these to be true based on the fact that they came from years and years of previous studies and were adapted, I think, into pretty accessible language. Now, I suspect some of you already have questions and hesitations about such a chart, and you might be wondering, how can there only be four stages of faith? How do we know this is accurate and isn't just stereotyping everyone unfairly? Excellent questions. As I mentioned, there's quite a bit of study, and this particular study builds on many other studies in, in, the, uh, in McLaren's findings of these compilation of studies. And he actually uses a bit of humor to describe various readers um, which uh, might fall into these different stages of faith and what you might be thinking when you see a chart like this. So, so just sit back and enjoy a little bit of humor. He said, I can just imagine someone seeing this chart and, and, and stage one folks are asking, shouldn't there be only two stages? Right and wrong. I can hear stage two readers repeating their most urgent question. How can I quickly get to stage four as efficiently as possible? Stage three readers, now there's a little bit more, they're complicated. The ones for whom this book is especially relevant, McLaren says, probably feel more suspicious than anyone else. Aren't you just imposing this human construct on other people to take advantage of them in some way to assert your power and superiority over them? Isn't every stage-oriented schema ultimately a meta-narrative that is incoherently colonizing? <laughs> and I imagine that even stage four readers are feeling a little impatient. Hey. Can't we just drop all this and love people as people with no labels? Right? McLaren believes, as do I, after 28 years of full-time ministry, that many wonderful people and many dedicated Christians who do much good in the world live a more frustrated spiritual journey than they need to because they never plow through and lean into their doubts and get out of the first two stages. They never get out of simplicity or complexity now, I hope you'll take time not just to notice the four stages of, of faith, um, but I hope that you will also take time, if, if you find something there that uh, either lights a fire or that unsettles you, either way, I hope that you'll take time to look into that book. It's an excellent read, and I think it'll provide you a full explanation of maybe some of the things you've experienced. And uh, chances are it may not spell you out to a T. You know, we're all different people. But at the same time, I think you'll find some tools there that might, that might remind you this. And, and, and here's the summation of it. No matter where you are, right? I say at the beginning of every service on your journey, you're welcome here. And friend, this is, a, this is your pastoral, pastoral reminder that God is not done with you. And that you didn't get this far to where you are today to be left high and dry. And I hope you'll listen to this. I want us to focus at New Covenant on fostering a culture of a community where people who are mature can serve in their faith alongside folks who might be quite skeptical or uncertain. Seekers and skeptics, traditional Christians, progressive Christians, people who refuse to wear any label at all, including Christian, should all be welcome to come in. 
to be welcome here, to serve, to love, to grow, to question, to doubt, to celebrate when joy comes easily, to seek companionship and comfort in times of loss or loneliness or uncertainty without fear of being judged. We have to learn to stop demonizing doubt and idolizing certainty, and not just here at New Covenant, but in our own hearts and minds, and get the word out across the family tree of Christianity. Doubt is often the last little phase of a dormant season, to go back to the tree metaphor. And this is exactly why we need to lean into our doubts rather than pretending they don't exist or running from them. And so if you find yourself in a season of doubt or uncertainty, the very best thing you can do is to stop running and lean into them. And please make sure at the same time that you stay connected to community. That is where the magic happens. Doubt only becomes a dead end when you isolate yourself from others, which is very stage three, by the way. But it takes a community to help embrace doubt without letting it become a dead end. As Brian McLaren so wisely says in his book, Faith After Doubt, faith before doubt is usually about correct beliefs, but faith after doubt is usually about revolutionary love. Beliefs are important. Please hear me say that. Beliefs are necessary. But believing some factual things in our heads is not the same thing as walking in faith. We've often confused the two. So I ask you, are we believers first who put our distinct beliefs first? Or are we persons of faith who put love first? Are we believers whose beliefs put us in competition and conflict with other people or differing faiths? Or are we persons of faith whose faith moves us towards love expressed to others around us is our primary goal? I submit to you that the latter should be true, that love is the goal. As John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement, so famously said, though we cannot all think alike, May we not all love alike? May we not be of one heart, though we are of not of one opinion? Without all doubt we may, he concluded. Herein all the children of God may unite, notwithstanding these smaller differences. So dear friends, it is my good pleasure to remind you, standing behind this pulpit today, that church is simply the community of practice. And love is the point of it all. And so at the end of the day, if our faith or our beliefs do not help us love our neighbor more fully and increasing measure, we know that we are not practicing the right way. So let us intentionally seek to grow in our love of neighbor together. Because loving our neighbor is the most tangible way we cultivate our love for God. May God help it be so. Amen.